0: secrets of the Mao Mao, this oath will kill me. If I am called in the night and refuse to come, this oath will kill me. If I see anyone steal white man's property, I must help him. I must hide what he gives me and say nothing, or this oath will kill me.
1: The whole system in this country, the economic system, is such that uh jobs are scarce automation is limiting jobs it's 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 decreasing jobs and uh,
0: if autom as automation eliminates the job opportunities legislation will not create job opportunities all it will do is bring about friction and hostility between the two races you, you see there will be no uh, progressive revival if black uh, folks are not deeply involved in it I will obey all orders of the Mao Mau, or this oath will kill me.
2: Peace and greetings, friends, comrades, and enemies. My name is Pascal Robert. I am the normal host of the Mao Mau Hour. Normally, on the last Wednesday of the month. And just to let you know, this episode of the Mile Mile Hour will be filmed and aired on Saturday afternoon at noon, or normal Saturday time for this is Revolution podcast, because my host Jason has a special program. He will be airing at 9 p.m. Today, we're going to be talking about a very important subject matter in the face of the global confl- conflagration that we are seeing in the Middle East with Israel and Palestine after what had been alleged to be an attack of Hamas that caused several deaths of Israelis is uh, the state of Israel is basically pounding the Gaza Strip and punishing them, causing thousands of deaths. And we are realizing that the desire of the Palestinians to be a liberated nation of themselves from occupation is, is being jeopardized in front of our own eyes with profound, profound attack by the nation state of Israel under the leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu. In light of this particular very, very tragic and precarious situation, we have to ask a question about a phenomenon that we've talked about several times on our show here that has posed a challenge to the hegemony of the West, and its ability to maintain dominance and control over the affairs of the world, meaning the United States and its NATO allies. And that phenomenon has been the rise of, quote unquote, multipolarity in the BRICS, which is to be defined as the rise of the combination of China and Russia as a unitary force posing as an alternative to the geostrategic, political, and economic Hegemony of the United States and its NATO allies, providing some would say economic, military and other options for the global south as a new paradigm looking eastward for the solutions to the problems of the world. So in light of that phenomenon what we've seen developing where countries like Africa and even some Middle Eastern countries have been looking to Russia and China as a new sponsor of the development programs. The question we're gonna be addressing on our show today is what exactly does this phenomenon of the BRICS or multipolarity mean in the face of the current geostrategic reality we're facing in the Middle East with Israel and Palestine. In other words, are the BRICS a serious threat to Western hegemony that has always been a willing sponsor and supporter of Israel, and oftentimes it's misappropriation misappropriation of power to cause aggressive damage to Palestinians? Are we gonna see a new type of paradigm where there will be a check on that aggression, or, Will the multipolarity and bricks be nothing but a paper tiger that will co-sign the new, the same old oppression that we've seen in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine, and do nothing but be a new banker of record for the global South under the same old oppressive terms? To answer that question, we have two esteemed guests who frankly, I could not imagine being better to hold this discussion. They have both been guests on our shows before. One has been a guest several times. We have Professor of Sociology at Florida Memorial and West Virginia State, Paul McComb. And we have uh, the the well-known activist, uh, architect of, of many movements in the South, new African, Kali Akuno. And we're gonna introduce them both to the show gentlemen gentlemen thank you for being on our show thank you for having me and Kylie, we'll remind our show what exactly the the full movement that you are operation
3: cooperation jackson. Cooperation, jackson
2: cooperation jackson correct i'm sorry my mind escaped no, me. that's all right I'm representing yeah, I cooperation jackson let me tell you brothers we have been uh conferencing back and forth via text about this subject matter and i want to repeat i couldn't imagine two better individuals uh from the radical left perspective to be having this conversation with on this subject matter so let's start right out the gate we all have been observing uh with quite sadness and probably legitimate anger at what is going on in palestine in the wake of the so-called alleged uh, hamas attacks and the response the disproportionate responses by uh, Netanyahu and the Zionist state of Israel. We all have been students and aware of the development of the BRICS and multipolarity with the rise of China and uh, Russia, particularly after the start of the war in Ukraine. My first question to you, and I will start with Paul first, is, is the BRICS and multipolarity a serious challenge to the status quo of Western hegemony in the Middle East, vis-a-vis Western, uh, vis-a-vis Israel and Palestine? Or are they really a paper tiger
1: that's going to co-sign politics as usual? Uh, Thanks for having me once again, Pascal. It's nice to see you, brother. And uh, it's a pleasure to meet you, Kali. So uh, thank you all, and uh, I hope this conversation goes well. To answer your question. The whole BRICS uh, situation, uh, the agglomeration that we call BRICS started when I was actually an undergrad in college. And initially it was BRIC, which was Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And it was coined by uh, the Goldman Sachs (laughs) um, economist, Jim O'Neill in 1991. And what he saw was that those three nations, i mean, sorry, those four nations uh, by 2050 would dominate the global economy. So basically it, it was within the framework uh, of a global capitalist world system, he's, he's doing his analysis. And if we interject uh, uh, br- the BRICS, and it would become BRICS in 2005 when it, with the addition of uh, South Africa. So it became Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Within the language uh, of uh, uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein's world systems, these nations were what we call peripher- uh, semi-periphery nations. They combined uh, uh, agricultural raw material production as well as emerging industrial productions. And that distinguished them from periphery nations such as Haiti and others, and, uh, and uh, what we call the Global South, which basically invested in uh, agricultural and raw materials for the global economy and in the post the emerging post-industrial economy such as uh uh, the united states and uh uh uh, western europe who were mostly finance capital uh uh uh, accumulating wealth through rent what the economist uh, michael hudson called rent so in that sense they they were not perceived as a challenge to the global capitalist world system under American hegemony. Because with the fall of the Soviet Union by 1991, the United States became the sole superpower, controlling uh, the global economy through its, its, its control of the Middle East, the petro, uh, 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 tying the dollar to uh, petroleum, and its control over the ability to print money and using the American dollar as the global currency uh, uh on the international scene so initially it was not seen as a a counter hegemonic uh force to the the capitalist world system at under american hegemony however if we also look at brics also within the language of call what Carl polany the the austrian anthropologist and economist who was trying to understand fascism and the rise of fascism post the 1960s, post the 1940s, excuse me. If we understand also the process that is taking place within the the capitalist world system with, as well as within the language of Karl Polanyi's counter hegemony, what Polanyi argues is that capitalism introduces forces in traditional society. And you have to understand bricks, The BRICS nations were traditional societies that were emerging as industrial as well as industrial societies. And what Polanyi argues, as these societies emerge, capitalism introduces commodification, which threatens the nation state. And as a result, the leaders of these nation states turn to fascism and this fascism, also has the potential, it has revolutionary potential in that, in the case, in the sense that it seeks to protect the nation states from the vagaries of capitalist relations of production. So the introduction of three things, the commodification of money, land, and labor, Basically, decenters or destruct, uh, deconstructs the traditionalism of traditional society. And that forces them, he calls this the double movement, to look inward and focus on protecting the, the society from the vagaries of capitalist relations. And can you, provide, you define in, vagaries of capitalist relations? Oh, oh the, 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 the contradictions of capitalism. Because as, as capitalist relations are introduced into traditional societies, what emerges is you get this relations between things. This is what Marx calls commodity fetishism. So now the relations are no longer between people. People now are determined by their worth in terms of money. So hence the commodification becomes the medium by which relations are, uh, are conducted in traditional societies. whereas in traditional societies you had relations between people. Now money becomes a, a, a factor. Also, what's introduced is the commodification of land. In traditional societies, land as a commodity is, is, is foreign. And capitalist relations of production introduce this commodification of land. The other thing that's commodified is the person itself becomes a thing that can be sold. That's also problematic. But within that, as these processes are taking place, there's the potential for revolution or counter hegemonic movements against capitalist relations of production because leaders will emerge who in Western society are deemed fascist or on the right, who will seek to protect the traditionalism of these societies by attacking uh, the relations between things, by trying to reassert the traditionalism of the society. And I think it is within those two frameworks, within uh, uh, the capitalist world system And the responses of these nation states to the commodification of people, land, and uh, 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 of labor, land, and money, and the responses to these the BRICS the BRICS nations that will determine whether or not they're revolutionary or not. not. And contemporarily, I believe it is revolutionary in the sense that uh, what we see emerging with China and russia as the leaders uh, uh who are attacking and we have to see yes in america and on and on the right they see vladimir putin Xi Jinping as fascist fascist that's what we hear uh, putin is a fascist again within the logic of polanian uh, uh discourse he can be he he is assumed to be a fascist because he's trying to protect his society remember in 1991, and I don't want to me—I don't want to go on. I'll end with this. In 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the Americans go in and they—they they commodify everything. They introduce the dollar. They, they introduce neoliberalism, and the Rush, Russian society basically was destroyed post 1991 under Yeltsin, and then you get the emergence of Vladimir Putin who not only, remember the first thing he does is he attacks the oligarchy. He attacks the oligarchy and tells them straight up, hey, it's either you relinquish some of your power you will kill you essentially if you read some of Michael Hudson's account of what happened. But nonetheless, he seeks to protect Russian society from what we call the contradictions and problematics or what Marx calls the vagaries of capitalism by becoming a strong man, introducing traditionalism in society, allowing certain segments of the society to be uh, 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 to be marketized or, or, or financialized, and then allowing state control of other segments of the society. So in essence, it, it becomes, it is ironic that Russia would adopt a, a socialism with char- with Chinese characteristics in Russian society post-1991 under Vladimir Putin in an attempt, in and it's in reactionary, in an attempt to protect the society from uh, 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 capitalism. So in a sense, it may have started off as a sort of, uh, 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 yes, in line with the discourse of the global capitalist relations of production under American hegemony, but post-Vladimir Putin It becomes a sort of protectionism. The West will call it fascism, which attacks not only international socialism, because what the BRICS are currently doing, it attacks both the neoliberal project and it also attacks the globalist universal project of international socialists in America and elsewhere. And I... I, 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 But do you think that that movement, Putin
2: and Zeke, is revolutionary or radical or transformative enough to challenge it is. the status
1: quo for me. what's going on currently in, between Israel yes, and Palestine? for me it is. For me, as it's currently constituted, uh, and I, and I, mind you, I understand it's reactionary in terms of trying to protect the societies from the relations of production, but for me it's revolutionary. It's revolutionary in this sense. It attacks, for me, the neoliberal project as these societies and these leaders try to protect their society from neoliberal policy, austerity, uh, 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 liberalization, market liberalization, financialization, etc. as well as it attacks the universalism of the internationalist socialist movement coming out of the, the, the West. I have a problem with the, the form of socialism that uh, uh, the international socialism that the left is producing in the West to 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 uh, 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 to uh, um, export globally. So for me, it's revolutionary in that it's attacking the neoliberal process coming out of America in the West, and it's attacking the internationalist uh, socialist movement coming out of the West as well for a nation a, a, a nationalization project. Basically, what the Brits are pushing currently is, and I'm a nationalist, of course, being of Haitian descent is a nationalist project in which the emphasis is on trade amongst uh, uh, the currencies of these nation states, as well as uh, uh, international cooperation among nation states. So it's basically a return back to the early 1900s, before World War One, without uh, uh, colonialism. So I do see that as revolutionary. Okay, I'm
2: going to let Kali jump in, (laughs) because I got my own issues with what you're talking about, brother.
1: So, Kali, I'm going
2: to ask you the question and repeat it. And you can, Uh, you know, attack what brother, not attack, but address what brother uh, Macomb said here. Do you believe that the current manifestation of multipolarity, i.e. BRICS, is radical, transformative, revolutionary enough to challenge the status quo politics that we're seeing right now in the Middle East visa Israel-Palestine? Or are we basically seeing nothing but a paper tiger with a new banker for the Global South and the Middle East?
3: I would argue neither, in truth. Oh, okay. Um. Look, some some brass tacks. Um, far as I could, could tell and listen and heard uh, as of today, uh, the Zionist Project killed over 600 people today. Now, that's what they can count. That doesn't mean or doesn't include, as far as I know, how many people who will die within the next 24 to 48 hours uh, as the electricity runs out because the gas uh, stores run out. Now they killed 700 people the day before. Uh, they've gone through four iterations of trying to create some form of resolution calling for uh, either humanitarian corridor on the light end or a ceasefire, kind of your, your middle end. The United States uh it is full on with the elimination of gaza i mean the, the elimination of hamas right uh and they are going to accept nothing less and they've given you know the garrison state of israel to this point at least rhetorically carte blanche to do whatever they want. now they delayed ground invasion right and and israel is chomping at the bit to go in by all indications and it's the united United States, which has said, hold off. And the reason fundamentally that they said, hold off, you know, by their own admission, uh, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal today, uh, is that they've been waiting to put in all of the equipment that they need, the military equipment that they need to be able to defend the Zionist project from further incursions from Iran, from Hezbollah, uh, from Syria, uh, from from Houthi forces, assumably in in uh, uh, Yemen, uh, and I'm just citing forces for the most part who, even though it hasn't been reported in the United States media, most of the Western media, there has been a larger escalation or con, you know uh, uh, enjoyment of of the struggle by different forces. Uh, has Hezbollah uh, utilized all of their forces yet? No. Uh, Has Iran deployed all of their research yet? No, they have not, right? But there is more going on than they are telling folks in in the most part in in the Western media in terms of a a response. But here's the thing. Uh, Iran just joined BRICS about two months ago, right? And and just got into like a little introductory kind of engagement in it, if that. The other piece that we need to talk about that I'm saying, you know, that needs to be addressed is the counter moves that the US was already making to BRICS even before this was this particular war jumped off. So I want everybody to go back. So the BRICS summit happened in South Africa, right in Azania in August, in September. The United States as the chief architect of the G20. The group of 20 nations, right, which is uh, technically the most industrialized countries of the world. And in fact, it's just basically the global financiers at this point, since most of the global production is actually in the global south, in truth. Uh, but let us we'll come to that later. But they called for and set up memorandums at the G20 for a corridor which includes India, the middle, and Europe. And this is their response to two things: number one, the bricks. number two, and probably even much more fundamentally, right, the so-called Silk uh, uh, Road, right, the Silk and Belt Road that China has been constructing, which is a sloppy, you know, they they they're projecting it as if it's this uh, well thought out, all thought out plan, and that's not how it's rolled out. It's not how it could roll out, given all of the. Uh, uh, complexities of how the Chinese got to negotiate with every single nation state regime about being able to build infrastructure in their particular land base, right? Uh, So it's going to have twists and turns in it. It's not going to be as uniform as people want to make it out to be. Particularly, I know there's a bunch of Africans that are hoping that it's going to create more infrastructure than they've ever been able to down in the last hundred something years. Now, that being said, uh, this countermeasure to BRICS was already set up. And the United States had already dedicated through its partner, its main partner, India, had already dedicated more money to the construction of this project than BRICS has ever been able to amass in its 15-year period. So the inequity in terms of the the, the level of financial resources these projects have to kind of bring to bear to anything is still real, right? But relative to this situation, look, the Russians uh the russians have been using their veto i think very effectively relative to this situation now what do i mean by that the russians have been very clear that they are going to protect the right of the palestinian people to engage in acts of liberation hear me clearly on that right because what the United Forces an unconditional surrender, even worse than what the Palestinians were basically forced into when they signed the Oslo Accords in the mid 1990s. And they're on every TV channel anybody would want saying, like, we have the right to determine the leadership of the Palestinian people. That's what this whole thing that we're going to eliminate uh, Hamas is all about. But relative to your question, we got to ask ourselves all right, outside of Russia, right, and the Security Council offering kind of a paltry defense. Where's China? Right, they haven't shown up and played much in in, in the, by way of offering a deterrent yet. India
1: is May probably yeah. Go ahead. the Go Chinese, ahead. Did, they, they did send, to counter the Americans, they did send six warships to the Middle East uh, to counter the Americans, just like the Russians also sent there are Kinzai miss- missiles into the Middle East as well to counter the American movement sending two warships. So for the first time, the Chinese are responding on a military. Have uh, they arrived basis. yet? Have they arrived yet? I believe they have. I believe okay. they arrived I, uh, yesterday I'm or today. I'm gonna have to follow up on that because yeah, I know yeah, I've yeah. been head, really.
3: they, they, I'm six, glad six, you put six. that out because I've been in yeah, some wondering if
1: if it's rhetoric or is it substance. No, they sent six. They sent okay. six. The New York okay. Times
2: reported to it, too. It. <laughs> I, I need to pause this, because we need to do a recap. There's been some very important facts that were we'll laid on the table here. Yeah. First of all, Kylie, you made it very clear that there has been, there was a countermeasure that the United States and its NATO allies had to the BRICS before the BRICS summit in South
1: Africa. Can not you, to the BRICS. After. No, it was after. Not the to, the BRICS, to the BRICS, to the not to the yeah. bricks, to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Okay. They pledge, I believe, what is it, six hundred billion dollars? They pledged. Off, yeah. Off the <laughs> they, yeah. But, but they made, made the, the pledge, pledge, but the money hasn't been released. This was a countermeasure too. I'm glad you are me.
2: I'm glad yes. you corrected me.
1: And, As, and, and, and Pascal, that was in
3: September. Now they they had. The whole thing about all these summits is they've done the work before they get to the summits. Everybody yeah. should know that, right? <laughs> okay. The summits are just announcement
1: photo opportunities. But it was. And remember, just, like, Joe Biden Chinese ran people. on that initiative. Joe Biden yeah. ran on on that initiative. Right. The initiative pledge, to, to to pledge that money to counter the Chinese the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. Belt, okay. So in
2: order to counter the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, can either one of you define the Belt and Road Initiative
1: for our audience?
3: You want to, I we can both take a little step. Go ahead, brother. Good.
1: Uh well, the Chinese it, part of it is to secure their their trade routes. Remember, the Chinese are heavily dependent go, on uh uh natural resources, gas and energy from the Middle East to power their industrial production. So, as and and also they hold uh uh, uh I believe what is it? 50, 40% of the American uh uh, uh reserve currency. And yeah, what they really did wrong. was instead Perfect. of uh, uh, um, investing in U.S. Uh, 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 bonds, et cetera, they use now the reserve currency because the Chinese save so much. They use the reserve currency to go around and build infrastructure project in the third world, in the Middle East, and it's a land corridor to export, to trade with middle eastern countries as well as african countries and these infrastructure projects are in place and, and it's, been a, it's a, a a win-win it benefits the chinese in terms of no longer focusing on a sea route to import gas and other natural resources now they have a secure land route uh throughout southeast asia uh, uh east eastern europe africa even in in, in the western hemisphere and now um, it's problematic for the united states because now the money that the chinese remember in the 1980s and 90s the same process occurred with the japanese the japanese because they had a trade imbalance with the u.s they were forced to go invest in u.s bond government bonds and real estate here in the u.s well the chinese In response, whereas the Japanese did that, the Chinese said, no, we'll use that money because they realized America is just printing money. So it didn't make sense to hold on to this reserve. So they invested the reserve and they called it the Belt and Road Initiative. And it's a win win for all the countries involved. So. But it's an attack. It it threatens the United States because the United States now the investment that should be coming in terms of the Chinese purchasing government bonds, investing in the real estate market here in the U.S. Now is being uh, uh, invested in countries in the third world, the Middle East, and other areas in Eastern Europe. So that's the problem for the United States. You want to jump in?
3: Yeah, there's another piece to it. Mm -hmm. I just want to add, which is the actual. The military geopolitical dimension of this, right? And if you just look at it from the old game, right now, what the United States has military superiority over is on sea, is by sea, right? But I'm going to go back, you play some Malcolm, I'm going I'm to bring that up. The US ain't one on the ground nowhere, right? Back World War II and the Right. So they understand the West
2: is not one on the ground they anyway. Don't, yeah, they so don't, they, don't
3: and, and all we gotta do is look at Afghanistan as evidence for that, right? They spent Iraq, 20, Iran, Iraq, Syria. Years. Yep. Yeah, but I mean the most embarrassing one they've they've, they've had in recent memory is is, is Afghanistan. They spent twenty years, billions of dollars, left them with a the modern army, right? Now that they're gonna have trouble uh, you know, re re equipping it from time to time, but they spent twenty years to take out the town. Taliban, only to put the Taliban right back, right, to leave all that in power. So they don't want a, a particular piece. So part of this is also Chinese thinking of, you know, you don't have, you might control all these military bases on the periphery of everything, but Central Asia, you don't you ain't got that. Not right? yet. <laughs> Not, yeah, well, I don't think they're going to get it, but that's, a, that's another, <laughs> that's that's another uh, uh, question, but, you know, going back to this piece around uh, uh this particular moment being kind of a test of the bricks I don't think it's really totally fair to make a, a strategic assessment yet on the basis of this moment is where I was headed right China plays the long game y'all right they don't they don't get into immediate conflicts right they they, they, they think in 50 to 100 years out, they got the political consolidation to be at this point in the game anyway, to be able to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have uh, blocks and tendencies and, and, and conflicts amongst themselves. They have plenty of that, right? But they're united enough in terms of their grand project that they can pretty much stay consolidated around the main objectives and missions. And one of the things that they've been trying to do is forestall the inevitable conflict they see happening between themselves and the United States. And the expansion of BRICS, I would argue, what just happened when they brought on Iran, when they brought on, uh was it, Iran, uh, the Arabia, UAE, right? Saudi Arabia, in uh, Saudi Arabia. They we Yeah. we're going to take a couple of your key friends who have been drifting from you and, and seeing you know how the winds of change are happening, beginning to assert more of their independence. And we're gonna bring our overall strategic numbers, particularly us in India, we're gonna bring that to bear and mix that with OPEC. That's basically the decision that they just made, right? So it's it's the original brick with OPEC, South Africa somewhat just kind of go along for the ride and adding on some political flavor right? And it was their push, I think, in particular, to get Egypt and uh, Algeria, I mean, uh, uh, Ethiopia, on, right? Uh, but they, they, them trying to go headlong toe to toe with the United States, uh, relative to Israel right now, they're not going to do that. And this is where you see, I'm talking about the Chinese to be clear. This is where you see some of the fractures, you know, taking place. And where I was going earlier, the biggest thing that's always been a concern for me about how BRICS has been constructed, is India under Modi, right? So Modi is a Zionist, right? On the basis of being extremely Islamophobic. Good point. his, His project is to basically rid Indian society and the Indian state from any influence coming from those particular forces. Part of it being historic, right with the 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 before the british came in india was dominated by muslims so folks or have if you're not aware about that the moguls like so there's a long-standing uh beef if you want to call it put it in language terms you know between the hindus and the muslims relative to this which you understand Anybody wants to go back to the, the look at the history that's part of what the partition of what became pakistan and bangladesh that's basically what that's about he's just reviving muslims it. out of india right just get them out. So may if you look at how this, this
1: plan, may I real quick, brother? We're,
3: we're quick, right? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, the, go ahead. The, the main point is to to recognize, as it relates to the UN General Assembly and when their influence. I'm talking about India, their influence within the General, uh, I mean the Security Council. They are going, they are taking the position closest to the West, right, and backing Israel in trying to do this particular purge of Hamas. So the core countries of BRICS, you got India on one side siding with the West, and you got Russia and China on the other side siding with the Palestinians. So there's some some core operational unity that they are not yet working in lockstep on all issues relative to their own respective interests at this point, that they can't operate as a consolidated bloc just yet relative to the its interests
2: do you think the indians intentionally are trying to play one side against the
3: other everybody's trying to play one side against the other it's geopolitics yeah.
1: <laughs> and particularly, real, quick, real, quick, yeah. real quick pascal we should not look at this as the west versus the BRICS. the emphasis right. is the west against three nations russia iran and china, and china. that's but their concern china. So if you look at Joe Biden's uh, declaration, his request for 107 billion dollars—60 billion to go to Ukraine to continue the proxy war against uh, Russia, 40 billion to go to uh, Israel—and mm-hmm. and you know I, I'm gonna be a little cynical. I do believe the Hamas attack was uh, was a red herring. It, 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 it was a red flag. Wanted they wanted to get there. They wanted to get there to start. A global crisis in the Middle East to attack Iran and Hezbollah. That's my position. When you have um, a leader is, have members, do, right? go ahead, brother. What, what were you and saying? When you have
2: Netanyahu, who literally,
1: if he doesn't stay prime minister, he might be going to jail. He literally. Yeah, and then, the, the, the Egyptians, it can, even the New York Times wrote that the Egyptians warned the, Egyptians the Israelis told what
3: was up. The Egyptians told him what
1: was I'm
3: just you. The Egyptians told them what was up.
1: And then seven billion to go to Taiwan, which is a province of China. So basically, they're trying to prevent these. They're trying to go after these three nations: Iran, Russia, and China. They're losing the proxy war against uh, 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 the Russians. It's it's practically over. You don't hear anything about (laughs) Ukraine in the media anymore, brother. So now, for me, this was a red flag. This was just. They knew it was coming. This was a, a, an opportunity to launch this attack. And now what's happening now, the because we've lacked our diplomatic abilities since World War II, the Russians and the Brazilians are actually moving diplomatically in the UN. Initially, the Russians uh, 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 proposed uh, uh, a ceasefire in the General, in the uh, um, Security yeah, Council, huh? which of course the Americans rejected. And then the Brazilians picked up on that same uh, uh, um, uh, proposal and they also were rejected. So this is the hesitation. I agree with Khalid in that, in a sense that um, the, the Americans are just basically stalling to get as much equipment as they can in the Middle East. But for me, brother, they're going to war, it, it's inevitable. Well, let me tell now, you. And we must not look, remember, the BRICS nation was actually a capitalist, a a, a creation, it it, it benefit them. Brazil is not a threat to the United States. Uh, 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 India technically is not a threat to the United States. The concern is Russia, China, and Iran. If those three countries control not only the Middle East and as Vladimir Putin said, once Africa wakes up and Africa is waking up and these three countries under the leadership of these three countries control Africa, the Middle East, in Eastern Europe. And now that you partner that uh, with OPEC to, uh, and now you're getting trade in, of oil in the currency of these countries, your basic America is in trouble and they know it, brother. So the only way out of this is to go to war, brother. That's the only way out.
2: You know, it's really interesting because I had a conversation with a friend of mine today that echoes everything you said. Number one, I said that I thoroughly believe that the the Hamas attack, was basically a red herring, and yet yeah. Netanyahu was warned beforehand by the Egyptians that an attack was com- coming, and if you know anything about the military infrastructure of the of the Israeli iron dome and the IDF, those things are designed not to fail. they cannot fail. okay In, other, in order for Hamas to have been able to pull off what it did, it literally would have required someone in the Israeli military apparatus to tell them to stand down. All right. There's no way that that level of sophisticated military uh, uh, activity causing that much of a loss to Israel would have happened without some type of internal awareness of the Israeli, Israeli military. So I completely agree with both of you that Netanyahu knew for a fact that this was going to happen. And someone asked what well, well, why would Netanyahu allow his own people to be sacrificed? I said, well, first of all, if you know anything about geopolitics, there's never a time in history when a leader was not willing to sacrifice some of his own people to protect the hegemonic role of his nation state. Number two, if you also understand the, re, the situation with Netanyahu, Netanyahu is a man who, but for the fact that he won the last prime ministerial election, he would possibly be in prison right now he's under a for massive corruption massive, allegations yep. in the state of israel he was profoundly unpopular and he realizes that he had to tie his fortune to some kind of reality that put the existential Feeling of not only Israel, Israelis, but Jews globally in a field that they have to trust him to avenge their lives. And this Hamas situation provided the perfect opportunity for him to do that, create a global geostrategic conflagration in the Middle East that gives the United States and NATO the pretext necessary to in Russia, China, and Iran to Absolutely. bring in the global conflagration against China and Russia that we all know the West have been dying for since earlier in the arts.
1: And then Erdogan just came out and gave a speech today and says, hey, you know, stand down or we're going to war. This is, he's, he basically agreed. And remember, uh, uh, the leader of the hey, well, U.S.
3: We, we just, you just inter- inter- introduced to you uh, turkey erdogan.
1: turkey erdogan of turkey sorry erdogan the leader of turkey, leader of turkey and, and um and remember right now the the israeli state and nikki haley and all of these neocons they're upset with uh, uh the u.n because the brother what, what's his name the leader who came out and said hey we need a ceasefire and basically israel is committing war crimes in the gaza in the gaza strip And now they're asking him to resign. Erdogan came out and said, hey, this is this is an attack on the citizens of uh, the Gaza Strip. And it's either a ceasefire or what they I think what the Americans and the Israelis and the the crazy uh, Western Europeans undermine is the sensibility. Now, the Palestinian, uh, uh, the global uh, 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 sensibility that people are feeling towards the Palestinian people. I think this is part of, and I, and I understand the geostrategic, the geostrategy behind the Americans trying to get as much arms in there as possible, but also, they I don't believe they expected that the, the, there would be such empathy for the Palestinian people that we're seeing witnessing now, brother, not like only in the, the Middle East, but throughout the, the global world. South, throughout yeah. the world.
2: I want to make an announcement on that. I think we can all empathize because we're all kind of we're all Generation X kind of guys here is that I made a statement to a, to a friend I was talking about today. I said, listen, there's an element to, to what's going on right now in the Middle East that gave me a sense of optimism. He's like, what could possibly give you optimism? I said, bro, I'm old enough to remember when there was no challenge in American public consciousness to any type of Zionist Israeli aggression and that Israel had carte blanche to do whatever
3: it wanted to do. But well, the- I'm gonna take it I'm gonna take it a little bit further, Pascal, uh brother Macomb. Um look, let's not act like uh I hate that term the Arab Spring, but I'm gonna use it because folks don't. That was a little bit more than a decade ago. And it did not end in the way that the masses wanted it to end. That's true. Some of them suffered some resounding defeats, Egypt, perhaps being the most uh, uh, resounding of them all, right, in terms of how that played out, how a bunch of revolutionary forces were hunted down, uh, the level of state repression that's going on, right. Um, But that muscle memory is still there. And the folks who were kind of in the leadership of that, at least on the street, They are now in their thirties, right? And in their forties. So they're entering into a period of political maturity and they've learned some lessons from from their defeats. The best of them, you know, always will. So from the jump, I've been both, you know, the little things I've been able to say and put out, been been pissed to a certain extent uh, with the response of the Arab and Islamic States within the region. But the response on the street, right from Morocco uh, to Pakistan and every place in between has been pretty astounding. And you best believe when Blinken went and uh, took to uh, to Qatar, Mm -hmm. right, when he made that trip, they played nice, you know, uh, uh, in front of the cameras, but you best believe that the folks from Qatar told him, look, y'all better understand what forces you are potentially unleashing. Because if you keep going on this, some of us ain't gonna be here to negotiate with you. Well, let all, me people tell you. Gonna, all people gonna
1: take us out. Well, let me We're tell you, happy. I wanna say as someone who is- But, but mm-hmm. do we all agree that the Arab Spring was a the- State Department initiative, right? We all agree on that, right? I
2: don't know if I would say that. That I think. Oh, be, nah, brother, it, it,
1: the evidence depends, is
3: out. It, it depends on where the and it depends on how. how the Arab, Arab,
2: Arab Spring was not one unitary action. All the no, same, No, 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 no. What, yeah. The yeah, Spring, on, what the Arab Spring was, what, what the Arab Spring in Tunisia is not what the Arab Spring was in Egypt. Is not what the Arab Spring yeah. was in Morocco. Was not what the you know, so to simply make it seem like. It was all, you know, a color revolution, you know, come on, get serious. I think is very reductionist. However, I will agree that Daesh, ISIS, and whatever was the counter-revolutionary measure that neutralized the Arab Spring in the Muslim world completely in terms and the rise of Sisi and all of those other counter-revolutionary measures as well. And the rise of these finance jihadist forces really put that to bed completely.
3: In but the it was a world. but the thing was it was a setup in part for this, yes that's, yes, that's, absolutely. that's the piece absolutely. we we need to have a deeper conversation about yes. Today we, we, we're gonna run out of time, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But
3: it, was, it was a setup for this because look, let's remember they talk about there was no provocation. Go back, I want everybody in your audience to go back and look at what Netanyahu did in September when he came to to New York for the United Nations annual peace. The map and everything that he put up in the justification, you know, he's done that before, but the language he used this time, particularly was telegraphic and saying there is no Palestine any, any, anywhere on this map, and there mm-hmm. won't be. And the, the the critical piece that was also part of the setup, a part of the reason why uh, I think the Hamas and his allied forces, we need to be critical, you know, because there's, it wasn't just Hamas in this. Let's that's, that's not repeat uh, uh, kind of what all of what the West is saying on that. That's another piece to come back to. But part of the thing that they had to stop was the normalization of relations with Arab regimes. Yes,
1: they had to stop it. Absolutely. They had to stop We have to give the Chinese credit for negotiating this peace this yeah, rapprochement between the Iranians We're, and the Saudis. We, we, we yeah. have to give them credit. And that's also, right. does your audience realize that Hamas started off as a creation of, um, of the, the Israeli, the state, right. yeah, the, the well, Israeli state to counter I, the PLO. You I, I, know, they, I it think more, it's a little bit more,
2: mind. it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, as, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely. The, 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 the,
2: the Hamas is a growth of the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim in Brotherhood. In right. Egypt. However, right. it was given sukkah and was buttressed absolutely. by the Israeli state literally to be a a countermeasure against Fatah and the PLO and the Yasser Arafat delegation because they wanted to delegitimize the PLO and Fatah and actually use a bet in war to create causes belli or reason for aggression to allow them to have pretext to always Always attack. Absolutely,
1: Absolutely, brother, absolutely. Just
3: real quick, because the piece that was going on on this about the pretext, we need to put to make sure the the audience knows this region has been in continuous war since 2001 it's been bled dry and despite uh iran being able to hold its forces at bay in the, the serious countermeasures that the united states unleashed upon it right when it invaded iraq it's not. Not the same position once was. No. And I want everybody to to, to go back and listen. Uh, uh, John Kirby yesterday, right? And and John Kirby's the old military uh, uh, general who's now acting as a spokesperson for the, the Biden administration. He told the world, but now, and I want us to extrapolate. He told the world, we ain't with no ceasefire because mm-hmm. the ceasefire will only aid Hamas. Now extend that thinking right? You putting all this heavy equipment, you setting everything up for perfect conditions because you want a war. You want to pull Iran in on a certain level. You want to pull Hezbollah on a certain level. And then let's listen to what, for those of you who can't have some access to what Hezbollah and Iran are actually saying, some of Hezbollah's uh, leaders have already said, this is existential for yes. understanding yes. the <inaudible> nature of the time. If they get rid of uh, uh gaza if they get rid of hamas they're coming for us so and, for and, us, and we also have to remember this, this 2006
1: remember yeah the hezbollah gave yeah. israel an ass kicking in 2006. Yeah, right. well there's an that's element
2: right. as as someone who's been a you know a practicing muslim for over 25 years there's an element there's an 800 pound gorilla in the room above this with the muslim world palestine israel and this conflict is an Exchatological ecstas- crisis point of fixation That's for right. not only Jews and Christians, but for Muslims, Muslims. as well. Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. The, the, the battle of Israel and Palestine is literally a part of the faith mechanism mm-hmm. of end times narratives of not just Jews and not just Christians, but for right. Muslims as well. Muslims. Yes. Okay? Absolutely. So people don't understand that one of the reasons why this is such a visceral reality for the Muslim world is that in the mind of very serious practicing Orthodox Muslim, this is the time of yeah. the
1: war of the last days. Yeah, yeah.
3: And that's what Erdogan, if you listen to his
1: speech. Yeah, yeah. That's that, what that's he said. That's part of what he brought that's up. It, that's exactly what he was saying. And, and but, also remember, in Russia and China's response to this is not eschatological; it's geo, it's geostrategic. Remember, it is Russia is going in to protect Syria and Iran, and China is going in to protect its. its, 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 You know how much oil China gets from Iran? Exactly, brother.
2: China gets something like five hundred thousand barrels, like a month, absolutely,
1: absolutely, absolutely, from Iran so this is this is dangerous brother and what what saddens me pascal is the fact that i don't believe the masses of the the american people truly understand where we are historically brother these these neocons they're not backing down brother they don't the entire world is calling for a ceasefire except the americans and their nato Mm -hmm. allies that's it everybody else even if, NATO know, allies is getting a little, little weak. Yeah. Until France today, you know, Macron came out and said, nah, there won't be any ceasefire after he said yesterday, there would be a ceasefire, it be one, but yeah. it, it's, this is, this is, people have to wake up and we have to hold this government accountable because this is getting dangerous brother. And I don't believe in the Russians today, they, they, they tested their nuclear weapons and right. they're Macron. not, they're not backing down. So we they, lost, they, we they lost. Up not today. Backing
2: down. No, I did not yeah. know that the Russians tested their nuclear weapons today. Is that oh, right? yeah, no, yeah. This,
3: yeah, everybody's yeah, doing some, everybody's hyping it up because I think they they understand the ten of the times and the way that yeah. it's not really being presented here. Yeah. And the piece that I was going about with, with John Kirby, I was saying extend that analysis. Like, part of the thing is they want to have this now because it's like, let are not going to give China a whole bunch of time to get prepared. Yeah. I'm gonna, you know, but either, either. And the logic is, let's be real, you know, uh, 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 I'm going to just break it down on some simple terms. The logic among some of these white folks is either we going to have it or nobody will. Oh, nobody A very close and, friend and, of mine. And, and that's the me. name of the game right now. They've been setting everything up. If you And look at some of the stuff they're talking about. They're going to be industrial production uh, uh, back. Uh, uh, you know, they've been the, the whole pivot towards Asia. Uh, let's not act like this piece that their brother Macomb brought up. They had a name for that during the Bush administration. Y'all remember what the axis of evil was? Yeah, yeah right. absolutely. That was Russia. Russia ran in China. So this is it's not like this is a new particular game. It's just a new play out
1: of this this No, this is, this is, is Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilization. civilization These people yeah. have been mapping this out since I was in undergrad. I had to read all of this garbage in grad school clash of civilization, at uh, the end of history, all of this foolishness. And at that point, BRICS wasn't an issue. Now, the minute Russia under Vladimir Putin decided, you know what, we're tired of the golden billion. We're tired of the golden billion. America cannot dictate. And now they didn't realize the ass kicking they're getting in Ukraine, they can't sustain that. So now this is the only opportunity they have. If they lose in Ukraine, and then you turn around and you get defeated. Israel gets defeated by Hezbollah and Iran. That's the end of Western hegemony. People have to, we have to look at America as a continuation of the British colonial project. Yeah. It is an imperial project that is that threatens humanity at this point. These, these white folks, well, they, they're looking to go to war.
2: There's an 800 pound gorilla in the room that I want to share with you guys that you might not mm-hmm. know. Biden sold off nearly half of the u s oil reserve. Is it ready for crisis? I don't know guy, you guys know this. Do you know that the yeah. United States oil reserves are the lowest? It's been since lowest. the lowest
1: yep. since the Absolutely, early '80s, brother why and this was and remember, Pascal, this was aimed to to threaten uh the Russian oil production. Remember right. this was put in place. Uh, 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 as sanctions against Russia, so that uh, the Americans started to tap into their oil reserve. You know
2: what I'm saying? Not only that, they were selling off oil they were taking from the reserve to finance the economy it, when the crash after COVID.
1: Absolutely, brother. And now so- they're all
2: so low. They're literally the article in Politico that I was just reading off was saying that. The worst thing that could happen is if Iran joins this conflict, because as we know, if Iran closes the Strait of Hormuz, oh, that means over. and the United States cannot produce oil for itself, there's no oil going to the West. That's a wrap.
1: Particularly, when you well, mentioned, Iran. This, this is and why, Saudi
3: I mean, this is why I wanted we and something to end on. One of the critical pieces that so far, um, the U.S. has been able to forestall, but they ain't going to be able to do it for long. Right. Uh, immediately, some of the most strategic minds that I know of that way, right over in Southwest Asia, they were saying, we need to just call for an oil embargo and end this damn thing. <laughs> wow. Now, that's that's going to come. That noise is not going to be able to be withstood. And I think particularly some like the Emirates, Qatar. Uh, Bahrain, and even the Saudis are gonna have to come to some conclusion, right? The, the piece I was saying about the, the forces of the Arab Spring, because look, there's already been chance. I've I've heard chance in in uh, Tunisia, I've heard chance in uh, 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 Morocco, of all places, Algeria, and in Egypt. That uh, one of the, the key things that's been coming up in some of these demonstrations, right, is the chance of when is the army going to get involved meeting our army, right? When are we going to send our soldiers on? They ain't going to be able, these Arab regimes, and they, they are not going, they're going to have to choose either we're going to remain a puppet or we're going to have to go with the mass sentiment of our own people. Otherwise, our people going to show us the door. Yeah. So they're going to have to make some moves like, yeah, we're going to have to de- recall the ambassador to Israel, you know, cease relationships, cut off an oil embargo. And if you look at where the U.S. now, it's in a very strategically weak place, right? And then one of the things, I remember you had some time ago, you know, how well uh, uh, to me in my mind, uh Putin played some of the aspects of that war, of how many dollars he held in reserve, yeah, right? mm-hmm. how much oil and stuff he, he had set up in preparation over the war. years, knowing that the West was going to keep pressing the buttons of, 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 of the, the Russian state yeah right? do ukraine. you know what they, what they want, right and so that you like it's the other thing ukraine didn't that they keep popping like oh they this just popped up i don't know no, no this is since 2006, 2006 brother a long <laughs> yes, like, had been played that it got set up when they when they made the negotiation to to basically dismantle the the the, the Soviet uh, Union. Union, absolutely. Yeah, you know, gentlemen, so
2: gentlemen, gentlemen, we are at an hour. I would love to keep this going. We got to invite you both back because this has been so rich. Thank you for coming on. This is Revolution, the Mau Hour. Professor Dr. Paul McComb and Kali Akuno of Cooperation Jackson. We will have you back to to talk about these these affairs again. This is Revolution, the Mama Hour. We are.
0: tell any secrets of the Mao Mau, this oath will kill me. If I am called in the night and refuse to come, this oath will kill me. If I see anyone steal white man's property, I must help him. I must hide what he gives me and say nothing, or this oath will kill me. The whole system in this country, the economic system, is such that uh, jobs are scarce. Automation is limiting jobs.
1: It's it's, it's decreasing jobs. And uh, if autom as automation eliminates the job opportunities, legislation will not create job opportunities. All it will do is bring about friction and hostility between the two races.
0: You you see, there will be no uh, progressive revival if black uh, folks are not deeply involved in it. I will obey all orders of the Mao Mau, or this oath will kill me.